enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this show is presented, as always, by Prevenex. You've heard me talk about Prevenex and their amazing joint health supplement before, especially for runners. How it reduces joint pain, stiffness, and improves flexibility and protects against so many other things when it comes to breakdown. And as much as I love that, that is not the only Prevenex product that I use. I am also a huge fan of the Prevenex multivitamin. That's one thing that I really admire about Prevenex is that they don't compromise when it comes to products quality, uh, ingredient quality, and just the amount of testing they do for their products, especially their multivitamin. It has the highest quality forms of every single nutrient that's in there, has the right levels that you want, and you'll feel the benefits. That's the most important thing. I've been taking the multivitamin now for, I think, eight months, and you can tell. I mean, I've gone on trips in the past, uh, obviously not recently, but around Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, where I didn't bring it with me, and I could tell. And it was something that was noticeable to me, and it's why I continue to take it. This is the first time in my life I've ever taken a multivitamin for an extended period of time, and there's a good reason why. I think it really helps me out, and I trust Prevenex. That's really what it comes down to. So I highly recommend this, and if you want to give it a try, go to Prevenex.com. That's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com, and save 15% on your first order by using code RUNNER15. Also, 30-day product money back, guarantee, no questions asked. So you really have nothing to lose. Go to Prevenex.com today and use code RUNNER15 to save 15% on today's show. We have an amazing runner, an amazing person, and somebody who, despite being near the top of her field within running, is someone who can provide a lot of insight to runners of all abilities, and that's Haruni Wijaratna. She is somebody who is a low 230 marathoner who ran uh, Division One and was an All-American high school. Usually someone of that level doesn't have a lot when it comes to you know, carrying over to runners like myself and runners like you. Uh, normal everyday runners. However, she's gone through a lot uh, as a runner that absolutely pertains uh, to what you may be going through right now or could go through in the future, whether or not that's injuries or unmet expectations or rebounding from disappointments or even having the, the goalposts moved on you right when you didn't think they were going to. For so many, that comes to you know qualifying for New York or for Boston. You thought you had the qualifying time. All of a sudden, you didn't. And while Qualifying for Boston or New York is not a problem for Haruni. Qualifying for the Olympics is a challenge. And when they changed the Olympic standard last year around this time, it was a tremendous shock to her. And she had to completely change what she was doing. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Haruni Wijaratna. Haruni Wijaratna, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to be on. Thank you for the opportunity, Matt. Oh, it's my pleasure. I couldn't wait to have you on. It's been so much fun uh, following your career. You're such a fun person to to, to follow. Uh, you and your group up there in Colorado do great things, and you really go out of your way to kind of showcase what you're doing, which always makes it easier for people like me to kind of see from afar. So it's, uh, it is really exciting to have you on, not only because not only obviously you're a tremendous runner, it's fun to follow you, <laughs> but I feel like some of the twists and turns in your own career, uh, you know, even before you became a professional, in some ways, you know, are, are very, um, I guess, amateur runners can relate to a lot of things that you've gone through and vice versa, because I think that there's a lot of similarities. And I can't wait to talk to you about some of those. Yeah, definitely. I think that's what makes this whole thing so exciting to be able to get to share it with uh, so many others out there. It, it makes a journey a lot sweeter. So one thing that's happened in the it's in the running world, not only for amateur runners, but for pros as well, is what's happened with the Boston Marathon. You know, so we saw that it was postponed originally and then ultimately canceled. And while there will be a virtual race component to it, for all intents and purposes, there isn't a Boston Marathon this year. And one thing that happens so often with amateur runners, and you work with amateur runners as well, so you know this intimately, is this idea of, you know, trying to get a Boston Marathon qualifying time 
and then not being quite sure what you need. And you kind of had that same um, that same kind of twist and turn in terms of your own career here where they really you know, significantly changed the Olympic marathon standard. You know, you represent Sri Lanka. You have dual citizenship. You easily eclipsed the previous 2016 standard of 245. Uh, and you're way under that. But all of a sudden they changed it to 229.30. What was that like for you when they announced that? And what was just some of the your mental, physical and emotional reactions to when when you finally got that news? Yeah. So um, like I at first when I saw the press release, I was like, this is not happening. You know, like as a. I, it's funny that you call me a professional runner because I, I don't necessarily see myself as a professional runner because I actually make, um, my living doing my real job of working for run coach. But, um, even just as a runner with any type of goal, like something as big as Olympics or running a BQ, that's not something you set your eyes on a year out. That's something that we've set our eyes on based probably our entire running career. So for the past, what, three Olympic cycles now, the standard for the women's marathon has been 245. And for me personally, in 2016, going into Rio, um, I ran 243, but it was two months before the window opened. So here I was thinking, oh, like, no big deal. I can go and hit that standard and go to the Olympics and be an Olympian. But then, you know, life gets in the way and it, it is what it is. Like running is such a fickle sport. Um, and for the life of me, I, I couldn't run 245. I ran like 246.07 and then I finished 11th place in Ottawa, which is a goal label race. And had I finished in 10th, I would have made the Olympic stand. Like it's an automatic Olympic qualifier. So I set it as my mission to run under this stinking 245 standard because it's like, why is this so elusive to me? Um, and the following year in Houston, when I did it, when I ran like 236, I was like, all right, here we go. Like, we're going to go to the Olympics when the window opens. Um, and it was a huge, huge slap in the face from um, an organization which I thought had the athlete's best interest in mind. And like, I agree, the Olympics are the, the pinnacle of our sport. And it's really important to have the best athletes there. But I also think that there was some very important aspects that were um, not considered when this standard was set about. For example, a country like Sri Lanka, I mean, it's a very warm country, right? So nobody's going to go run a national championship and run a, a smoking fast time there. It's impossible. And like, I don't get money to travel all over the world to chase these, you know, world majors or really fast European races, whereas some countries like the U.S. or European nations do. So it just felt like it felt like an attack against the smaller nations, a country that would maybe have one athlete qualify for the Olympics all of a sudden had, you know, that chance was taken away. Um, so, yeah, I was uh, I was pretty upset about it. It was not a good feeling. Um, but as in the runner in me, the resilient marathoner in me was like, all right, well, you can either sulk and be upset or um, you can kick up your training and roll the dice and see what happens. So that's the place where I'm at now. Um, hoping for a good day the next time I line up or have the opportunity to line up. There you go. And I think that the the entire, you know, COVID being, you know, pushing back the Olympics and so many other things, while, you know, you're not going to find many people who, you know, who are going to say like positive things about this, right? There there are so many negatives that go along with, you know, the, with this pandemic and things along that lines. With that said, it also gives you another year, right? So you're at 234, right? You ran in Dusseldorf. Um, yes. So you have, you have time when you look at it. Okay. So you have, so you ran that, you know, just over a year ago, when you think about, you know, what you want to do moving forward now that they changed it to 229.30, do you keep your eggs in the marathon basket and say, all right, let's try to chop five minutes off this time. Can I do it? Or is it more of, you know what, let's, let's, um, you know, kind of shift over to the 10K. Maybe that's where, you know, the, the better, the better route lies. Yeah, well, that's a, <laughs> it's a good question, but the standards across the board are just so ridiculous now. Um, like, I don't, I don't want to sound like a negative person, but being a realistic coach here with my coach hat on, um, there's no way I'm going to run the Olympic standard in the 10K. So I think my best shot is, uh, to get as close as possible to that 229.30. Um, 
And, you know, there's, there's different ways. Like I could run, let's say a, a 230 marathon, but it's, it places high at some goal label race. That's extra points in the world ranking. So there, there's a bit of a way to, to cushion that, that result, even if it's not the automatic time qualifier. All right. So let's talk about that because there's some strategy there, right? So you have, all right, two, two choices here. So when you look at the fall in terms of what do you think any of these races are actually going to end up happening? Or do you think that they're just going to end up being either completely negated and they'll do it again in the fall of 21? Or do you think a lot of races will just start moving them to the spring? Oh, that's a tough question. So working in the running industry and working with, you know, hundreds and thousands of athletes who have fall race goals, I'm truly rooting for, for their sake and mine. Um, that fall races start to happen, but I know that it's, it's much easier to say that than to do it because there's so many logistical things set up around races, like the bathroom situation, bib pickup. How do you, you know, get a hydration cup from a volunteer while following all of these social distancing and, you know, protecting each other? Um, the start line, like so many, so many key factors of what a race experience actually is, right? Um, so I, I truly don't know. I mean, I was, I felt like Boston postponing and canceling was kind of setting the tone for the rest of the world because it's such a, a well-known and respected event. And it hurt my heart, broke it when, when they had to cancel it. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing about these different types of smaller events popping up now in different states. So who knows? I'm just, I'm just hoping that something good comes out of it. I wish I could like look into my magic ball and see what the future holds for everyone. But um, we're, we're all kind of standing by, right? Oh, absolutely. And it's hard to imagine these races going off with their full field or anything even like close to it. With that said, I think having an elite competition is a completely different thing. And I wonder how many of these races will basically just embrace the elite component of their race and just kind of like, you know, for, for lack of a better word, just kind of disregard the main field because they just, just because they have to. So they say, okay, like we'll have the elites come in and we'll just, we'll kind of go that route. You know, we'll be able to kind of continue, continue to keep the sponsorship relations that we have. We'll continue to keep our potential TV deal. Um, and then we just won't have the main field, which for all intents and purposes, when it comes to the TV side of things really doesn't play a part at all. Uh, and you wonder if, you know, they maybe just, you know, so say like the Chicago Marathon, maybe they don't run in the streets of Chicago. Maybe they, you know, go outside the city and they, they find a suburb where they can make it work and it's, you know, something that they can handle. I wonder if some of these races are trying to find that sort of workaround. You know, have you heard anything about anything along those lines? Um, I think that there's been some whispers of, you know, several of those key races, like, um, you know, like, like the big ones, obviously, that have been postponed from the spring to the fall, at least trying to make like salvage their event to some extent. Um, but I think that it's tricky, right? Like, um, like the London Marathon, for example, like it's London. Yes, because people go and attempt world record events and that's super exciting, but it's the spectators and the masses that really make it a spectacle. Um, and that's, that's who brings the money in, like all those, 30,000 registrations, whatever that is. So um, I don't know. I mean, I definitely don't <laughs> wish that I was working for a race organization right now. Um, but my my job and the role that I have within my company, like we've certainly seen massive um, effects of what's happening in the race industry right now trickle down to us. I think that we need to take advantage of like the, the first course that Kipchoge did breaking two on, like the track in Monza. Oh, yeah. Like what else they got going on? Can't we just have everyone <laughs> run over there? Yeah. I mean, if you have an in at uh, at that event, you'll have to hit me up because I'll definitely <laughs> hop on a plane and get over. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, don't, I can't say that I have any, but we have a lot of tracks here, right? I mean, you know, race car and race car is a huge, you know, um, you know, whether it's NASCAR or Indy or, you know, shoot, anything. You know, we have, we have plenty of race tracks around here that we could, we can hop on. Um, you know, especially some of these courses, you know, they're like a mile long. And yeah, I mean, like they're they're tilted quite a bit, but ultimately it's all right. We get to do twenty six laps of one of these courses, and then you know, if you need so to bad. fuel up, you can head into pit row and get get your fuel <laughs> and come back out, and you'll be good to go. Yeah, I mean, definitely, just so many options. Uh, I I think people are really wanting to watch some type of sporting event sooner or later, so maybe that's the route that we go. 
Who knows? Did you hear what they're doing um, for the Tour de France? No. What are they doing there? So they, they pushed it back a couple months. So just like the traditional Tour de France is going to happen, but like all of the other races in the bike, in Europeans bike series leading up to the Tour de France, have all been scrapped. So they're basically having a virtual Tour de France, but not like the virtual Boston Marathon where it's like no elites are doing it. It's just going to be hobby joggers like myself. The virtual Tour de France, which will happen on the traditional Tour de France dates. So next month, they're going to have the, you know, I think it's 10 professional teams or have entered and 13 um, TV networks are following this. They're all going to just hop on their bikes and do a Zwift version of the Tour de France for three weeks. Wow. That is what a creative way to do that. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, it is pretty funny because like bike racing is like they could just do time trials all the time and like be completely socially distanced. But you you wonder if like, you know, you saw it two weeks ago. You know, a lot of people, in fact, I just interviewed John Ranieri. The podcast is coming out tomorrow, uh, who set the the world record for the half half marathon on the treadmill. And there was a bunch of people. Sarah Hall did it. Max King did it. And there was a, this huge outcropping of people who were doing it. You wonder if, like, there's a market for that. Obviously, it wouldn't count towards what we're talking about, like Olympic, you know, um, standards or anything like that. But it would be a potential competition. I think that would be so fun. And I'm I'm a big treadmill girl. I mean, living in Colorado, you kind of have to learn to love the the machine. And I would I mean, I think that would be super fun. See, I think it's funny hearing you say that because so you're you're in team you're in team treadmill because people get so <laughs> divided on this. I'm on the completely other end of the spectrum. I'm one of those people where like if I were to run a nine minute mile outside and then a nine minute oh. mile on a treadmill, the treadmill nine minute <laughs> mile would feel like seven thirty pace. I don't know whether it's my stride or it's like a psychosomatic deficiency, but it's like something along those lines. Yeah, I think you definitely have to have a certain, you do have to have a certain stride. Um, Because I have this debate with my my teammates out here in Boulder all the time. And they're like, how are you on the treadmill? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm short. My stride is short. It just works. And like, I'm sorry, you're six foot and your stride is so long, you're falling off the treadmill. Um, but you have other advantages in life, right? So. <laughs> All right. So we were talking about like the, the yin and the yang of you know what you've experienced over the past couple of years of like, all of a sudden you busted way past the standard and then they moved the goalposts. And now you're looking at like, all right, what do I do now? This mirrors, in a way, what happened to you earlier on in your career in terms of, you know, you were a high school standout. You got a full ride uh, to Kentucky, which if people don't realize getting a full scholarship in any Olympic sport's a big deal. A lot of these scholarships are, are parceled out, people getting half scholarships and quarter scholarships and things along those lines. Ultimately, you didn't have the kind of career that you won at Kentucky. And certainly, considering the conversation we just had, we know that, you know, you've really turned it on here. Um, you know, I know you don't consider yourself a professional runner, but we, we guess we could say an elite runner. Um, you, you've really turned it on and, and really had an effect. What was it like for you when you were enrolling at Kentucky? And what goals did you and, you know, your the, the, the coaching staff that recruited you, and I know there was quite a bit of turnover while you were there, but the coach staff that recruited you, what were the goals that, that you kind of came together to, uh, to put forth and that you were looking forward to achieving when you got to college? Yeah. Um, oh, this is a, this is a good question. And I could probably like write a book about this. But, um, so I let me back up a little bit just to provide some more context as to like how much that full ride meant to me and going through the recruiting process because I'm the first person in my entire extended family to ever go to the university. So like nobody knew. Like, we didn't know what financial aid was. We were just like, wow, like, you're going to get your college paid for. This is amazing. And like, thank goodness you can run. Like, what an opportunity. Cause otherwise I don't even know if I would have gone to a university. Um, so like, I'm, I was super, super grateful and thankful for the opportunity to run and pursue a higher education at Kentucky. And I remember the coach that recruited me visited me and I just remember telling him, like, I want to be big time. And for some reason, that was like music to his ears. And I remember him like quoting that to me when we had various statuses um, while I was a freshman at Kentucky. But um, as you noted, my career didn't go um, how I envisioned it, like right off the bat, just I, uh, I think it was a combination of really high expectations and 
as a female athlete in high school, like I guess my body hadn't developed to be able to sustain whatever, to be able to perform. And I really went through a lot of growth changes and my body changed a lot when I went to college. And it was just a really tough time to go through all of that, um, you know, as an 18, 19 year old. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was needless to say disappointed and being in a D1 program and in a place like Kentucky, athletics is huge. And that's, that's the reason I chose to go to Kentucky because they love their sports. And, um, you know, to this day, I bleed blue, whether it's for track and field or basketball or whatever the sport is. Um, but I just wasn't performing. And in D1, um, if you're not performing, it's, it's a business, right? They make an investment in you. If they're not getting the investment out, I'm not scoring points at SECs or, um, making regionals, qualifying for NCAAs, like they pull your scholarship. And those were some very hard truths to learn, um, in a very young age. And I mean, honestly, looking back, obviously I wish I had a really great career in college, but I think those really hard truths and having to navigate very choppy waters early on, um, have made me into the person I am today. I mean, had I not gone through those things now, I don't even know if I would have continued to take the punches that life throws at me, um, like changing the Olympic standard or, you know, missing the Olympics by one spot in 2016, things like that. So yeah, I mean, as cliche as it sounds, sometimes you got to just take the, the losses and learn from them and then move on. And that's really well said in terms of how to deal with that and kind of put it in your rearview mirror and move on with your life. It's very difficult to do in the moment and maybe even harder to do at such a young age. What were some of the ways that you dealt with that issue or those issues at that point? Because like you said, you had huge goals. You were at a school in part because it's so sports focused, which means if mm -hmm. sports isn't going well, well, what then? Yeah, um, that's so that question actually was something that my high school coach, who's my coach to this day, um, he told me that if you're going to pick a, a school, I know you love the sports and you want to be this amazing, you know, standout runner, but pick a, a school that you think you can also be successful if sports doesn't go well. And so when, when running wasn't going well, I mean, I've, I've been a good student always, but my focus went into the classroom because got to double down on the things that are going well and that I can control. Right. So, um, <laughs> making sure that, you know, those book reports and all the coursework, the exams were as best as I can go. And there, there was always hope that like, maybe it'll click at some point because I was, I was a good runner at some point in my life. So maybe it'll come back around. So I think, that's like thinking that there was that light at the end of the tunnel at some point also kept me going. Um, but I mean, there was definitely some, I don't think I handled it very well. Like there were some dark days, like when my teammates and my roommate got to travel on a special trip to Seattle to go run in the Dempsey and I was left behind. I was like, oh, like maybe I should just call it quits and, you know, quit the team and just go back home. But um I think you just have to, if you ever want to be good at anything, you just have to have some kind of belief in yourself. So I, I kept a small light burning, I guess, inside. I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly where I was going to go next. Because at certain points when things aren't going well and they're not going well, maybe for a sustained period of time, especially if you have other options in your life, it can be easy to say, you know what, maybe this just isn't for me. Or maybe to even... You know, there are times where I've done this and I know other people have as well. Where They say, you know what? Maybe this is just a sign. It's not meant to be. Look at all these negative things that are happening. Maybe I should just, you know, I'm, I'm fighting against gravity here. I just need to back off. This is obviously not meant to happen. Let me see what's next. When you look back at those moments and then just try to decide or try to figure out in retrospect why you stuck with it or even post-college. Right. Why did you, you know, continue to, to bust your butt and look at the runner you are now? Right. I mean, you're you've accomplished really high level things. What kept you in the sport when it would have been so easy and maybe for some so many people, you know, completely understandable if you had just said, you know what, this isn't for me anymore and I'm moving on. Um, wow, that's a tough question. I think I think it really comes down to that. I just had too much pride to give up. Um like I, uh, 
I love that I ended up as a marathoner because it's the epitome of never giving up and always being in it for the long run. Um, and I think that that's just my personality. Like, I think as hard as it was to lose my scholarship and to be left in the dorm room, it was harder for me to look back and be like, you gave up an opportunity that you could have maybe tried a little bit harder or believe a little bit more in. So once you got finished with college, again, you went into college saying, I want to be big time. You finished with college and you stick with running. At what point did you start to reassess your goals and what did those goals turn out to be? So I ran five years at Kentucky. So I got my bachelor's and master's there. And towards the end of it, like that was five years that I never ran a single PR in, not in a single event, as embarrassing as that sounds. And somehow made it through the end and <laughs> walked out with my head held high, thinking that I tried well enough. Um, I just, I just really needed a change from the high pressure situation. Um, I've mentioned before, like, Running in D1, it's it's a full-time commitment. And being a student athlete at a D1 level on a scholarship, or even if you weren't on a scholarship, is, is a very high-pressure situation because you have to be ready to perform. And if you're not doing well for your team, then you might as well not be there at all, really. It's it's what it, it's what sometimes it feels like. So I connected with my high school coach, um, and he was just like, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but are you interested in running a marathon? Because I feel like... You've always been better longer. So in, in high school, my best event was the two mile. Um, and he's just like, why don't we just see how it goes? It's on the road. No pressure. It's not the track. You don't have to hit splits. Like, let's just see how it is. And nobody, I, and I was living in a town called Evansville, Indiana at the time working for Target. And he was like, nobody knows who you are. You have no expectations. This is a whole new journey. And I was like, okay, sounds good. I mean, I still love running. Um, this is a new challenge. And I had, you know, I couldn't even tell you that I had Olympic aspirations at that point. I just wanted to see what this marathon thing was about. And um, that's all it took, just taking the pressure off and just having it be about me instead of me running for this bigger um, mission. And, um, it clicked like my first marathon was ran in Indianapolis and I was hooked and couldn't have asked for a, a better turnaround to resurrect my career. And not only that, but then you end up being, you know, at the forefront of representing Sri Lanka, uh, which is, you know, you hold dual citizenship and you are, you know, one of the, one of the best runners, you know, in the history of the, of the country at this point, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, considering, you know, that what you're a 10 time national record holder. I mean, that has to put you in the, in the conversation for the best all-time runner, uh, you know, in Sri Lankan history. So at what point did that become part of your motivation? Yeah. Um, so that came about when I was still in college, I, I was like, what, 1920. And I wanted to represent Sri Lanka in the junior, some kind of junior, like worlds or something like that. And they just straight up told me, they're like, you're not good enough. Like you live in America, your performances need to be so much better because, you know, the U.S. has all these resources and on and on and on. And so I was like, okay, I guess if I'm going to have to represent Sri Lanka, I just have to be like the next level. Like I just have to be the best possible version of myself. And so when this marathon, my, I ran my debut marathon, it unknowingly actually was my first national record and I had no idea. And I, I think it was on Facebook and then a newspaper picked it up and all of a sudden Sri Lanka is knocking at my door being like, would you like to represent us in uh, international competition someday? And I'm like, wow, how quickly the tides turn from one, from one <laughs> performance. Um, I've been trying for years to get your attention and you just told me that I wasn't good enough. And all of a sudden now, uh, here you are helping me trying to work out my dual citizenship and whatever. So, um, yeah, that that one race like really raised my stock as an athlete to an astronomical level. Um and yeah, then after that the records just uh kind of kept coming in and um yeah, I don't I don't really know how to explain it. I just think I just really needed a change in pace and a change in scenery and out of all places that happened in Evansville, Indiana. So um, I'm super, super grateful for that turn that my life took me in. 
So you went to you went to high school here in the states uh, in Northern Virginia. We talked about your college career. You know, you've you know, lived in Indiana. You've also lived, and now you live in Colorado. Uh, how often do you go back to Sri Lanka, and when did you move away in the first place? Um, my family immigrated here in 2000. Sri Lanka was still in the middle of a pretty um, toxic civil war. So I've been here for you know the the better part of my life. Um, but I still do have a ton of family in Sri Lanka and actually all around the world. My dad was one of 12 children. So as you can imagine, big family. Um, we go back about once a year. I've started going back about once a year because, um, they like it when I compete in the national scene there. Um, but prior to about two years ago, I hadn't been back to Sri Lanka in almost 18 years. So it was, um, I it, I was like a deer in headlights, like because there was so much, you know, so much had been destroyed and rebuilt since when I was there as a child. Um, I went by my old primary school where I first started running, and I could hardly even recognize it. I was like, "You're t- you've taken me to a different school. This is not what I remember." So um, it, it was pretty humbling, but I'm just super grateful that the people in Sri Lanka have accepted me so warmly because, um, you know, I I feel like I. I'm very much of a foreigner to them, but um, yeah, I, I think that we still have some some uh, Sri Lankan blood to share. So I, I'm grateful that they've accepted me in. So, do you have any contact with running fans who currently live in Sri Lanka? So many. I feel like um, social media has been a super super helpful platform in that regard because. Most of my followers on Facebook and on Instagram are um, international people. So they live in Sri Lanka or Sri Lankans living in other places like Doha or, you know, European countries. Um, but yeah, they so, just so many fans. It's, it's unreal. And I'm like, I don't even know how you guys know me, but thank you. So what was it like this past year when so many of the people that you train with or run with in Colorado or just people that you know were training for the U.S. trials, either in the marathon or the 10K or the 5K or more than just one, frankly, um, and you were kind of on a completely different timeline? What was that like? That was um, that was tough. But, you know, living here um, just outside of Boulder, it's a very unique place to live because people are always getting ready for some big event or another, you know, the worlds or Olympic trials or Pan Ams, whatever it is. So everyone's getting ready for something or another, a world major. So in that regard, I have like, what, eight to 10 girls that I train with who are all just so good and they push me every single day. It wasn't very different to match my training with what they're doing. Um, But it was like everyone was getting ready for a marathon on February 29th, which is kind of a random date. Um, so like those four months before the trials was a little tricky because I had just come off of Doha. Um, I was getting ready for Houston. Well, actually, I was getting ready to run the South Asian Games Marathon in Nepal. Um, then I was getting ready for Houston. So I felt like I could never sync up on a cycle with somebody because they had this like very definitive date, February 29th. Um on a very hilly course, which is not what Houston's like. So that was different. But um, I mean, I think it's super awesome to be a part of like all these people's journeys because I can identify with them so much. Like so many, like I felt like I was alone in college when I wasn't performing well, like looking at all my teammates winning all American honors and SEC titles. But so many people go through that same situation. Um, and then they keep that light burning in, in, in other ways. Um, so I, I like, I couldn't be happier to live in Boulder and find a group of people like that with similar goals, but, um, also people who don't consider themselves full time or professional runners, quote, because, um, I have to meet them pretty early to get workouts done. So then I can start, so we can all start our work days on time. Yeah, see, this was the next question I was going to ask you. You're right on top of this. You know, like, exactly what question's coming next, man. You're, like, feeding me right <laughs> into it. How do you decide who is going to be in your core group of people that you're training with, especially in a place like Boulder, when it's just so many high-level runners in that area? Yeah, that's a tough question because um, you get lost in this comparison game, you know, far too often because – you can, like, there's no other place like Boulder, I feel like, well, maybe Flagstaff. You can just go on a run and then somebody blows by you and you look and it's like, oh, 
that's Jenny Simpson. It's okay that she just blew by me. Um, so the, the way that I went about finding the people that, you know, that I could realistically train with and that we could benefit from each other were, um, really through my coach that I had here for a few years, um, Brad Hudson. So Brad had a group out here and he had handpicked and he was coaching and helping, um, several athletes. And when Brad's, kind of left us and the group dissolved, the the people who stayed in Boulder just connected and we continued to stay together. Um, we, I think having Brad as that first introduction was great, but we realized that we all have similar goals, abilities, and also lifestyles and work schedules. So it was just, we just kind of gravitated towards each other. It's like a magnets, magnets attracted at the light, right wavelength. So let's talk about the schedule because you just alluded to it. Like you're working a normal job at normal hours. And I say normal, I mean kind of the traditional uh, work hours that so many of my listeners, you know, probably have as well. And yet you're training at the highest level you possibly can. So what does that look like when, when things are really, you know, when things are really hopping and you're putting as many miles as putting as many miles in as you can, what does your day look like? Oh, it's tough, man. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. Um, and I think you have to have like some, some, like a lot of dedication and a lot of self-talk to get through almost every day. At least I do. Um, and just a lot of planning too. So like, I'll give you an example of uh, how ridiculous my life is sometimes. So, um, I'm lucky that I can work remotely. So I don't actually have to go into an office, which some, most people do. Well, maybe not now, but in, you know, most times in history. Um, I usually have to wake up like what, 5.30, um, take my dog out, make sure, you know, any emails that are urgent are responded to. I have to be working out by 6.45. It has to be wrapped up by 8.30, 8.40 at the latest so that I can come back home and start work at nine. And then I work from nine to five on most days. Um, and then I go and do my second run. Um, and then I come back and I finish up more work and then it's time for dinner. So there's really my social component and my, um, athletic component have to be rolled into one because otherwise I will see no one and I'll just like be a hobbit, um, just, uh, running around on trails out here in Boulder. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. And there are so many days and I'm like, in the winter when there's like, what, eight hours of sunlight, I'm like, I don't want to wake up at 530. This is terrible. Um, but you just have to quickly have a, a good self talk with yourself and set your mind right because your mind controls so much of uh, what happens and what don't happen in your life. So when things aren't coming easy and it's hard to get out the door at these obscene hours. You have a couple couple days in a row where you're just not feeling it. Who in your life helps you stay motivated or gets you out the door or kind of pushes the right buttons? Um, I have two people. So again, very fortunate that my fiance is a runner also. Um, so we have that because if I'm not running, he'll probably be like, so you didn't run today? And like shame me, shame me into getting my, uh, my act in check, but also the, those teammates that I was telling you about, right? So we might not have, we might not all have an official coach, but I feel like we have this commitment to each other. Like I'm going to text you and say, I'm going to show up at 630 and I don't want to be the person who tells you, Oh, I'm going to sleep in today and not meet you. So that's kept me accountable as well. Yeah. I mean, we all have those people in our lives. And if we don't, maybe they're people who like we know, you know, through social media, right? Or they're mm -hmm. like, we have an online coach who helps us with it. Or, you know, we have like, you know, we just pop in the David Goggins audiobook and he fires yeah. us up or, or something <laughs> along those lines. But I know, especially us early morning runners who run before work, um, man, it can, it can be tough sometimes, especially if you have huge goals that you're trying to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, at this stage in the, in our life, in my life, at least, like if my goal is to be at the Olympic games, I don't want to be at a start line trying to run my Olympic qualifier knowingly full well that I've, that I've had the opportunity to not miss a workout because obviously if you're injured, you're going to miss workouts. That makes sense. But within my control, I had the opportunity to not miss a workout or a training session. And I did, I missed it because I was lazy. Like I don't ever want to have that thought when I'm at the start line before a gun goes off. So 
that's that's what I tell myself sometimes too to hop on the treadmill on a on a chilly chilly day during the dead of winter here. So in this moment, we're experiencing so many protests around um, you know systemic racism and, and social justice and. Basically, the idea of, hey, let's, you know, this isn't a controversial statement, but let's treat people humanely, you know, and, 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 and treat people the way we want to be treated in so many ways. And with that being said, when it comes to the distance running community, specifically elite American distance running, not necessarily by Americans, but by people who are currently in America running at the highest level, um, you know, part of this conversation is just kind of the lack of diversity within America at this highest level. And we've seen some very interesting articles. Chris Chavez put one out a couple of days ago on Sports Illustrated. Uh, it was a very powerful article uh, you know, speaking with some men and women who've experienced just, you know, outright racism to, to you know, never mind kind of the, the systemic oppression that can happen over time. You're in a unique position, someone with dual citizenship and yet someone who was, you know, through their formative years within the running community, high school, college, and now post-college, who's been in the United States. What are some of the things that you've noticed or things that you wish were implemented to potentially open this community up to more people? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I wish I had a perfect answer. Um, I will start off by saying that I think the awareness that's going on right now um, in our country and in the world about these issues are super important because there, you're right, there's very little diversity. Like I personally was the only non-Caucasian person in my high school team and in my college team um, on the cross-country and distance side. So, um, I mean, I personally didn't, I haven't experienced like outright racism, but I feel like there's been, you know, subtle looks when my seven white teammates and I walk into a restaurant after a meet in, um, the South, in the South, like after an SEC meet or something. Um, and I, I felt, I felt uncomfortable. And I have always thought like we as human beings love diversity in everything that we do. We love having lots of clothes and shoes and types of food to choose from. Why is it such an issue that having diversity, like having a diverse amount of people and beliefs and preferences, why is that an issue? If we're all about variety and going into a grocery store, we're not all going to want to buy one type of bread. So why, why can't we accept human beings for the, the varieties and, um, differences that they come in. It's, it's been confusing to me and I don't have an exact answer, but I feel like having open discussion and these kind of grassroots changes. So something from the very, like very, uh, the bottom, like a parent having a conversation with their child to be like, you can't, you shouldn't avoid playing with, you know, the, the Asian kid in the playground. Like, I think those are the type of things that make lasting change in the world. Like, I think, there can be legislation that's passed, whatever. But until people learn to respect things, there's there's rules all the time and the people don't respect them. So I there just needs to be some kind of cultural shift. And I don't think it's going to happen, uh, you know, overnight. But I think conversations like what's happening now and um, the educational piece is, is going to be key going forward. Right. I mean, the vexing part of this is that running is almost by definition a sport that's kind of open to anybody, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't a sport that should require a huge amount of overhead costs. If, say, like, you know, someone of any ethnicity, just if their family wasn't doing well uh, from a financial standpoint, like, this isn't a sport that should nece- shouldn't necessarily affect them, right? This isn't lacrosse or hockey where you have to buy hundreds of dollars worth of pads and travel all over the country and, and all of this stuff, right? Like this is, this is not necessarily a sport that falls into that realm. And yet here we are, you know, having this conversation because it's, it's so obvious. So it, it really is interesting how we were kind of in this spot now. And you wonder, you know, if it's more of a, you know, not that this is not has to be either or if it's more of a top down, if change starts top down or bottom up, um, because we can, it's, it's almost like we're in this position now where like, you know, as large as the United States is like we're not utilizing the full capacity of our population to to achieve great things in the running community to say nothing of the fact that, you know, running can help so many people 
And yet we're closing people off to, to that help because it's just such an uplifting sport and a way of bonding with people and also having kind of that solo venture aspect where you can learn to achieve and also rebound from things like you've talked about in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think running like is a perfect metaphor for, for life. And the barrier to enter, to enter the sport of running, as you said, exactly. It's so simple, but. The problem is the barrier, the entry is simple, but then the, the development piece isn't there. Like it's almost as if because you continue to run because of some reason and whatever that reason is for people, it doesn't resonate within, it doesn't cross certain racial, um, or ethnicities, right? So I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to pinpoint, but as a Asian American, I mean, I can count on one hand the amount of Asian Americans that are at this level in our sport, um, in, in the United States. And I think it's really worthwhile to figure out why that is. Like, why, why do they choose to go become doctors and, um, engineers as opposed to professional athletes? Is it because they don't have the ability or is it because somewhere along their journey, um, a door was closed to them? whether that was on purpose or, or not. But I think that's, that's the kind of insight that we need to figure out. All right. Last question before we get going. Uh, I told you before we, we start talking, I couldn't wait to talk to you on the sales side. So you've worked in sales for a while, which is kind of a unique spot for someone who runs at your level. And I couldn't wait to talk to you on this because I've worked in sales as well. And a lot of the people who listen to this podcast work in sales. And I couldn't wait to hear about your experiences. I guess first things first, who are, and I kind of talked about this, you know, with the running side as well, but especially when it comes to sales, who are the people either in your life or through, you know, books or magazines or other media that you've learned the most from in terms of your sales technique and growing yourself as a person in sales? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I kind of stumbled onto my sales life, um, leaving my retail life behind. So my biggest influence has honestly been, uh, my current boss. Cause like he had some major patience and he had to do some, you know, a ton of handholding to get me to, um, my current ability as a salesperson. So I feel like he had a big impact. And, um, I read this book called, sell if, as if your life depends on it or something like that, that I might have butchered the title. But anyways, super good book. And it um, really drives home like the points of how to sell, how to build that, um, that relationship with your audience. Like you're not going to, I'm sure the salespeople and you would agree, like the goal is to sell, but you're not going to start off with showing that your only intent is to sell, right? You're going to try to build that interpersonal connection and, um, dance around with them a little bit. And I felt like as a runner, I had no patience for that. I just, all I wanted to do was get on a call or, or you know, make a pitch and have them tell me that, yes, I, I want it. Like I, I want to buy in, where do I sign up? And that was a big learning opportunity for me. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I think that's a Grant Cardone book, if my memory serves. Um, I, which is, yeah, I think you're right. So, yeah, I think that that's a, he's kind of like at the forefront of a lot of these sales books. So I got to hear, you know, a, 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 an early in your sales career outtake of a, maybe a sales call that didn't go the way that you had hoped. And you look back on it now with like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that. Uh, I, Matt, I couldn't even tell you like, just so, like, so embarrassing, like saying the wrong name of the company. Um, like they're in my industry, there are companies that have very similar names. Um, and I finally give you an example. So there's, there's a gym named this, and then there's also a treadmill company with this exact name, but with a, a different spring on it. And I was pitching to the treadmill company to become one of our partners. And I made the grave mistake of saying the name of the gym instead. And I was just like, honestly, if I can't remember the name of the, <laughs> the customer I'm trying to sell to, maybe I shouldn't be in this role. Um, but that, that just came about from just like being super nervous and like, um, something that I just had to learn to get comfortable with, with, you know, cause I lost that sale. Needless to say, they were like, you can't even remember our name. We're not, we're not interested. Um, yeah, super, some embarrassing times that are blocked, put into a black box in my mind, tucked away. All right. Well, when I think of when I think of, you know, things that are exhausting, running at an elite level is certainly an exhausting practice. Doing sales 
for eight to 10 hours a day is right up there as well. What do you do to ensure that you are like recovered and energetic and ready to roll the next day? Because this is a lot to get through in one day. Yes, um, it is. It's like, it's like taxing in all different ways, right? Like physical taxing on the running side, emotional and mental taxing on the sales side. Um, Honestly, I mean, I, I've always turned to running, like running's been my crutch through so much of my life. So this is why like my training, if you were to look at my training, you would be like, there's no way you're a 234 marathoner. Look at how easy your, your easy runs are. This is like, were you walking on your hands? Um, and I just, I need that disconnect. And I can't, I told my coach, like, you can't give me paces to do on my easy days. And I need more easy days and hard days because I just need to be outside. I need to be in my thoughts and just disconnect from everything. Um, and I mean, that's, that's been the best medicine for me. Nothing else really. So what are the easy paces done at? Oh, it's just like nine minute pace sometimes. I mean, it could be, it's, it's a, it's a toss. Like it could be nine minute pace, 840. Like I have a Strava and there was this one day somebody commented being like, did you, did you do this run or did something happen? Is your data off? And I was like, oh no, th- this is my run. This is in fact my 930 pace trail run. So, um, <laughs> I just need, just need to be out there and be kind to yourself because you can't, like, I have to perform in so many aspects of my life and it can't be a 24-7 ordeal. No way. I love it. I love it. I got to, like, cut that, cut that clip out and send it to all of my runners that I work with. <laughs> I mean, like, you are doing your, your easy runs faster than a potential Olympian. Slow down. <laughs> Yes, slow down. Listen to your body. It, you need to. It, otherwise, it's not going to do the work you want it to do for you. Haruni, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so much fun talking to you. Oh, it was super fun. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, I'm super excited to listen to, obviously, my own podcast, but uh, tune into all the new ones you're working on also. Thanks a lot, Matt. Haruni, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh my goodness. I just had so much fun talking with Haruni today. Uh, she is just such a joy to talk to and has so many insights, uh, that at least I don't know about you. I know I took a lot from this episode. And if you took something from it as well, I'd love to hear from you either, uh, preferably on the social media channels, whether it's Twitter or Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle and Twitter handle is the same, actually. It's rambling underscore runner. You can hit me up there. Also, you can get me on email, rambling runner podcast at gmail. Also, head over to the Patreon page. If you love these episodes, I'm putting out more stuff on Patreon all the time. We just released our first Patreon-exclusive episode with Melissa Milani last week. She was a guest that was extremely popular and continues to be very popular. And I know people were excited to hear more from her. I'm going to continue to put those episodes out on Patreon, and I look forward to seeing you over there. In the meantime, have a great day and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.